Our Almighty God and Father, we are so thankful that we're able to come before Thy throne of grace and mercy this hour. Father, we pray for those of our number that are not doing well. We pray for those who are in need of Thy help and Thy care. We pray for those caring for them that through Thy providence that they may reach the health that we want. We pray for the new additions to the families that we have. We pray for uh, those that have had babies. We uh, ask Thy blessings upon them that they can uh, be healthy and remain that way. Father, we pray for the works here at White Oak that you will bless our efforts as we reach out to the community around us as we grow in number and in faith. Father, we pray for uh, the church the world over, that those who are establishing congregations and those who are helping to grow congregations, that uh, thy blessings will be upon them and that they will be able to uh, produce much fruit for thy cause. Father, we pray for our nation, our country. We pray for the upcoming elections that we will... Uh, as a nation, elect those who are more in line with uh, tenets and, and commandments than those that we've had in the past and that we can steer our nation to uh, in a better direction. Father, bless us all as we continue thy study. Bless our efforts as we uh, open thy word this day. And that may, may we learn much from it. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. All right, I was speaking with uh, Clay last night and we were trying to determine exactly what kind of material we wanted to cover. And so I asked him if uh, if we'd had a study in Romans in a while. And he said we hadn't. And so I thought, well, we'll open up the book and we will uh, look at the letter that Paul wrote to Rome and we'll look at that for a, for a while, however long it takes us to get through that, and uh, glean from it some uh, great things. And as with any class, what... What I like is if you have a comment or have a question, just grab my attention and stop me. And uh, we want to hear what you have to say. We want to uh, uh, be able to learn, all of us to be able to learn from each other. Because I'll tell you right now, the preacher doesn't always have all the answers. But we know a place where we can go to find the answers. And that's what we'll do. And uh, when I preach, I often say, don't take my word for it. Make sure that what I'm saying, you can find it in the Bible. And we need to do that with anyone, right? It's like the Bereans, Acts 17. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily. And Paul was their preacher, inspired man of God. And so they understood, though, that their souls were so important that they could not take the word of any man uh, for it. And... Uh, so that's why they search the Scriptures. And that's what we want to do. When we engage in a Bible study, often in the Bible we, hear, we see and we hear the term, let us reason together. Okay? And that means we're going to sit down together, we're going to open the pages of the Bible, and we're going to see what it has to say, and we're going to talk about that. And we're going to learn together what we need to know and what God has put forth for us. As with any study, though, when you do a study of the book... I've often uh, was taught while I was in school, and it has uh, turned out to be the case, that when you begin a study of a book in the Bible, or really any kind of a topic, we need to understand something about that letter. So we need to introduce that letter. A good introduction to any letter that was written that we have in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, or whatever the case may be, uh, is about half the work. And so, uh, let's start with that this morning. Let's talk a little bit about the letter written to Rome. Why should we 
engage in a study of the book of Romans. What's the purpose behind that? Well, the short answer is because it came from God, right? It's an inspired letter. But when we look into this letter and we begin to read the words that Paul wrote, we're going to learn in a hurry that this book is one of the richest sources of doctrine that we have in the New Testament. It is a fabulous letter. Uh, many people that were not Christians, that were members of denominations, even they understood how great this letter was. Unger, who was a premillennialist, said that it is the first great work of Christian theology. John Chrysostom, an early church father who was trained in Antioch, lived uh, between 347 and 407 A.D., he had Romans read to him twice a week because of the great material that was found within its pages. Samuel Coleridge, who lived from 1772 to 1834, said it is the most profound book ever written. John Calvin, he said the book of Romans opened all the treasures of the rest of the Scriptures. I tend to agree with that. Joseph Excel, author of the Pulpit Commentary, some of you may have some of those commentaries, said that this is the cathedral of the Christian faith. Martin Luther uh, said that this is the chief book of the New Testament and the purest gospel. Now, however, when we turn over and we get to chapter 3, verse 28, he did add into that passage the word alone. Okay, he added to it. Uh, he said we are, in essence, saved by faith alone. So he added that word alone, but still he understood the great importance of uh, the book of Romans. Philip Melanchthon, a reformer and a collaborator with Martin Luther, he copied the book of Romans several times in his own handwriting so he could learn and have those things instilled in uh, his mind. He lived from 1497 to 1560. Most people that study this book, and uh, I can recall the first time I did a deep study of the book of Romans, most people are just astounded by the things that are found within its pages. Now, when we begin a study of the Bible, there are a lot of books or letters in the Bible that seem to be very confusing. If someone were to ask us, what's the most confusing book in the New Testament? What do you think almost the immediate answer would be? Revelation. Well, Revelation can be confusing. No doubt about it. But if we look over the the landscape of uh, the, quote, Christian uh, organizations in the world, most of the uh, false doctrines that that have come about are really a result of a misapplication, a misunderstanding, and... Uh, taking out of context much of the letter written to Rome. Now, when we talk about the premillennial error that is taught throughout the world, now most of that does come from Revelation. But all those other errors usually that are founded are founded by misapplication and misunderstanding of the book of Romans. And I believe it is one of the most misunderstood books within the church itself. I believe it is probably the most difficult book, or at least it is for me, to get a real good handle on, to understand exactly what it means. And we want to tear this book apart, and we want to look at it, and it's going to be very enjoyable, the things that we learn. Uh, 
What is the proper approach to studying this letter? Well, first of all, I think one of the things we need to understand is unlike many of the other letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, the letter written to Rome is not a personal letter. It's more of a treatise. It's more of a manuscript on being justified before God. How do we go about being justified before God? That is the the whole uh, point or focus of the letter. Not a personal letter like he had written to Timothy or to Titus, though full of doctrinal uh, teachings, but still a personal letter. Now this letter was written to the Christians in Rome, but it was more of a manuscript on how do we become justified before God. Now the word that is translated righteousness comes from a Greek word which is better translated justification. So when we see righteousness, how do we become righteous before God, really what we ought to be thinking about is how do we become justified before God, okay? Because that's what we all need. That is the the, the whole purpose of Christ coming to earth, right? We have a problem. It's a sin problem. How do we how do we eliminate that problem? Well, we become justified before God. We become righteous, right? And so we need to understand that this is really, in essence, an instruction manual. And so we can sit down and tear it apart, but we have to really focus and pay attention, right? How many of you uh, studied uh, uh, different types of mathematics when you were in school? Well, a bunch of us have, right? Let me tell you what my least favorite, and my girls better not listen to this. My least favorite subject the whole time I was in school was mathematics. I just finished up a degree, and it was really odd to me that I had to, had to take a class in applied uh, calculus. Applied calculus. And I'm looking at that. It was in the last quarter, last semester. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking to myself, why would a guy that is getting a degree in Bible and ministry have to take applied calculus? I don't know. never did find the answer. But I had to take the class. And you know what I had to do? I had to sit down because I had a manual that taught me all of these mathematic theories and uh, different things uh, uh, that come along with that. And I had to study that manual. Now, you know how I didn't study it? Like reading the Reader's Digest. I didn't study it that way. You know, you read the Reader's Digest, you kind of flip around, you read what you want to read. I had to start at the beginning... And I had to learn everything because the next thing built upon what I just learned, right? That's how we study the Bible. The thing you learn in the beginning builds and you learn the next thing based on that foundation. Especially when we're reading a manuscript, we're reading something that is a manual for teaching, right? And so that's how we need to approach uh, the book of Romans. Now, Let's talk a little bit about some of the preliminary things. Who's the author? Well, Paul. Paul described himself as the author, and only the rankest of liberal heretics in the world have ever denied that Paul wrote the letter. So we understand Paul is the author. He claims to be the author. Now, where was Paul born? Well, we remember his name prior to becoming the Apostle Paul, right? He was Saul of Tarsus. So he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He was born to Roman parents which made him a free-born Roman citizen. 
He was also a Jew. When uh, he was a young man, he was sent to Jerusalem, and he studied at the feet of the well-known teacher Gamaliel. Now, there were two uh, schools of thought in uh, the Jewish religion, even within this Pharisaic uh, sect of which Paul uh, was uh, a member. And one of those sects was uh, the one in which Gamaliel was the head, and they viewed the writings of their forefathers as just as important and on an equal basis as the written Word of God. The other... Uh, uh, school of thought that was in the Pharisaic sect was that they only wanted to pay attention to the Torah. Now Paul, and we're going to notice when uh, we study other aspects of the New Testament, when Jesus encountered these Pharisees, he told them on much occasion, you put just as much weight on what the traditions of men have given you as you do the Word of God. That's the sect where Paul learned his uh, education, where he got his education. That idea that the, that the uh, traditions of men are just as important. And we know that he studied under Gamaliel because Acts 22 verse 3 tells us that. Now later on, of course, he became the greatest, in, at least in my opinion, the greatest gospel preacher the world has ever known, second only to the Lord himself. Probably had a greater impact on the world than any other human that ever lived, second only to the Lord Himself. Where did he write the letter from? I think there's a lot of internal evidences that tell us that he wrote the letter while he was in Corinth. Three references in chapter 16 imply that he was in Corinth. He talks about uh, Sennacherib, the hometown of Phoebe, which was on the eastern seaport of Corinth. And if he was in Corinth, then that is why he would have known of her intended trip to Rome, Romans 16, 1 through 2. Paul was also the guest of a man by the name of Gaius when he wrote the letter. Now, if this is the same Gaius that was his earlier convert in Achaia, his home was in Corinth, Romans 16, 23, and also in 1 Corinthians 1, 14, we learn that. If... Erastus that we read about who joined in sending greetings to Paul's readers in this letter is the same one who at a later date is connected with Corinth. Then, of course, he would have been in Corinth when he wrote the letter. Romans 16, 23. We know that Paul spent about three months in uh, uh, prior to his departure for Jer Jerusalem with the collection in Greece of whose capital was Corinth. Okay? We see that in Acts 22 through 3. So it is likely that the uh, letter to the Romans was written during this three-month period. Okay? Now, as for the time of the writing, the date, Paul informs his readers that he was about to depart to Jerusalem to deliver the benevolence offering that had been collected. We see that in Romans 15, beginning with verse 25. The offering was initiated, we know, during his third missionary journey. Acts chapter 20. Verse 4. Now the third missionary journey is universally understood to have taken place between the years of 54 and 58. So we have uh, this period of time when the letter could have been written. But which three-month period of time could that have been? Well, he was going to sail 
uh, on a journey and he was going to, or he was going to go on a journey and he was going to go by sea. Well, he couldn't really do that during the winter months, during the hard part of the winter months because the seaport in that area was closed because of storms and bad weather. You get around closer to the springtime, you could go and you could travel. So likely, his letter was written between those years sometime in early spring. I won't be dogmatic on that, but that just appears to be the logical period of time because you could not sail on the Mediterranean uh, before that time. Now, why did he write the letter? When we begin to break down and we learn a little something about Romans, we need to understand what's the purpose of the letter, right? Why did he write that letter? Well, we're going to notice as we uh, continue our study that there were some problems. There were some issues at Rome. And Paul uh, needed to address some problems that were existing between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Okay, Jewish Christians felt a certain way toward uh, their uh, Gentile counterparts, and perhaps it was Aquila and Priscilla that we know so much about was the source of that information for Paul. Hey, we have a problem here in Rome. It needs to be addressed. Now, the Jewish converts were claiming, here's the problem, they were claiming a superiority to the Gentile converts. Why? Well, they were Jews. It's hard to shake off a previous belief system that you dedicated your life to, well, isn't it? We know that today. Do we know people that came out of denominations into the Lord's church? It's hard to shake that off. We, You know, someone that's dedicated their life or their lives to a certain cause or a certain belief, it is difficult to just get rid of that, right? It takes a little while. And we need to have patience with that. We need to understand that, right? I've studied with people, and they may have been a member of a certain denomination for 30 years. Can I truly expect them to be able just to quit completely and have bring none of that over? Well, that would be impossible, wouldn't it? We see that same thing happening in Rome. What does Paul do? Does he come down with the rod of an apostle and drop the hammer on them and and tell them, you need to straighten up, you need to get your... No, he, through love, begins to explain to them what God intends for them to know. And he has great patience with them, right? Sometimes I feel like that members of the Lord's church not everybody, but I've come across some people and I feel like that they have this idea that someone is a member of a denomination and they know better. And they're doing it on purpose. Look, that's not the case, is it? I fully believe that members of any denomination, just your average member, loves God. Now, do I believe that the hierarchy of certain denominations that claim to be able to perform miracles... Do I believe that they really think they can perform a miracle? No, I don't. I don't believe that at all. They know they cannot. But your average member, I believe, loves God and feels like that's the way to heaven. So how do we, how do we address that? Through love, through patience, through a study of the Scripture, through allowing people to understand that we love them, we care for their souls, and we're not trying to show our superior knowledge to them. We know that Paul didn't do that, right? If there was ever a man that was a Christian that that had the opportunity 
to present himself as someone intellectually superior than almost anyone else he wrote a letter to, it was Paul. But he didn't do that, right? And so, Paul was addressing some issues that these Jewish Christians had because they were still bringing over a little bit of that Jewish belief system into Christianity. And we read about that in the book of Hebrews, and we read about it in the book of Galatians. So Paul had to address that. That was a common problem. Remember, we're talking, the church hadn't been established somewhere around 30 years at this point. So there were some issues. And so Paul is going to explain to them that the Jewish Christian is no more superior than the Gentile Christian. In fact, they are on the same plane concerning salvation and damnation. Right? Everybody needs salvation. Everybody gains it in the exact same way. And at the same time, anyone that does not go through the process to become a New Testament Christian, they will suffer the same punishment as anyone else, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, right? And so when we make application, and I think that's the whole point of studying through these letters, right? Because we can boil it down to this. Paul has been dead for about 2,000 years. doesn't make any difference what Paul did in his life if we can't learn from it. And so I think that's what the letter is for. So we are going to learn that we will find ourselves in situations where we come across Christians, New Testament Christians, that have become unfaithful. They are no better off than someone that has never obeyed the gospel. If you're unfaithful, you're unfaithful, right? We're going to learn a lot about faith in this book. And I think it's going to help us to grow and become stronger and better Christians. The Gentile Christian is just as saved as the Jewish Christian. A person that grew up in a home where their parents were members of the New Testament church and they grow up to be faithful and to become Christians is no more saved than someone that came out of a denomination. That, I think, is the application today for this particular uh, scenario. He also explains to them that the Abrahamic promise, because of this idea that they had, was given to everybody, not just the Jews. So he has to point that out. And this particular promise came through faith and not through the law. See, if you were going to be saved as a Jew, you had to fulfill the law of Moses perfectly didn't happen. There's no law in and of itself that can save. Now let's think about that. What's the speed limit right through here on uh, Dayton Boulevard? 40. What does the law tell me happens if I go 45 or 50? The law says I get a speeding ticket, right? Right? Does the law provide any way for me to have that speeding ticket removed? The law in and of itself doesn't. The law says you go 45 or you go 50. Show up at the courthouse, pay your fine. That's the only way, right? Pay what you owe. Pay your debt. What did the law of Moses tell those people that lived under it? If you sin, you will die. Period, right? Didn't give you a way to be saved in the moment. They were saved in prospect, 
right? They had to be faithful, but they had to be faithful. And when Christ died on the cross, then their debt was forgiven. The purpose of the old law was to show us how bad sin was and what the price was for sin, right? Now, does that mean we don't live under law today? Because we're going to hear that, right? We're going to hear that in the religious world. We don't live under law, we live under grace. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is absolutely an unscriptural uh, tenet, an unscriptural teaching. When we get over to Romans chapter 7, verse 22, you know what we're going to learn? We live under the law of God. When we get over to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, we're going to learn that we live under the law of the Spirit of life. That's a capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of life. We live under that law. When we study Galatians and we look in chapter 6, verse 2, we're going to understand that how do we, uh, what do we do when we help our brethren? Be, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. And when we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. Okay? When we study in James chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to be judged and we're going to live under the perfect law of liberty. Right? John said that Sin was a transgression of what? First John 1. Transgression of the law. If there is no law, there is no sin, there is no transgression. If there is no law on the speed limit up here on Dayton Boulevard, I can drive however fast I want to. No repercussion to that. Let me give you an example. I was in India last uh, May, a year ago. And I always wanted to drive in India. I felt like if I could drive in India, I could drive anywhere. And I don't know a whole lot of people that go to India and drive. So I was in northeast India, in the jungle, and then we would drive up as far as we could. Then we would trek about four miles into the jungle. To, we, we had a village in there that we went and we evangelized. And, and uh, by the uh, blessings of God, we established a congregation there. But we had to do some driving. So I asked the uh, brother that was with us, his name happened to be Ramesh. I said, Ramesh, can I drive? And Ramesh, being such a wonderful guy, hated to tell me no. And so I guess I took advantage of that. So we got into the, it was just a dirt road through the jungle, so he decided that was the appropriate time for me to drive. It's just like driving through the woods. And when I mean jungle, it was truly a jungle. I was, I've been in a jungle before. Looked like the woods behind my house where I grew up. This was a jungle. Had leeches and all kinds of things like that, right? I saw an elephant going through the woods. We were, we were, uh, uh, we got stuck and was looking around and the guys were looking around and there was a civil war going on and I didn't realize that until I got there and it was quite dangerous for anyone that was, they viewed from the west because they would try to kidnap you for money. And so they're looking around and I asked one of them, I said, uh, what are you looking for? Are, are these, uh, this, this particular tribe, are, are they in this area? They said, oh, no, no. We're looking for tigers. I laughed and I said, that's not funny. He said, I know. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure that there's none close so we get in the car. So we were in the jungle. So I'm driving through the jungle and we, um, we, we come out. We have this young man that wants to obey the gospel. So we have to go find a water hole somewhere that's not full of leeches. So we come out of the jungle, well, we get back onto the road, we walk out, we get back on the road, and I'm, and I'm still driving. Okay? 
And Ramesh is in the back of the van, really no way for him to get out, so we're headed up, so I just pull out on the main road. I'm driving on the left-hand side of the road, and you know what? There are no laws, no speed laws. I can drive however fast I want to. So I'm just buzzing up through there. I'm watching everybody, and I'm going pretty fast. You know, no one can stop me because I'm breaking no law. I was probably driving faster than everyone else. I was probably driving a little straighter than everyone else. But there's no law. So the point is, without a law, there's no sin. We live under law as Christians. We live under grace. But it's a law of grace, isn't it? There's a whole lot that goes to that. When we look at this letter to the Romans, it's going to establish a few facts for us. First of all, it is going to establish that the saving power of God is not a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. It is the gospel, the written word. That's how we are justified before God. That's how we become righteous. The gospel is the saving power. Now remember the context, not just to the Jews, which they thought at the time, but to everybody that believes. What's the application to us today? The saving power of the gospel is not extended merely to those who are members of the church and you grow up in a home where your mom and dad are Christians. Because I'll tell you, I didn't grow up in that home. My wife didn't grow up in that home. I know several of you didn't grow up in that home. But guess what? It is still extended to us. That's what Paul's talking about. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to grow up in a home where you're connected to the church. Your mom and dad are Christians. I didn't grow up in that home. So that's one thing it's going to establish. The second thing it is going to establish is that man is saved by faith, but it is an obedient faith. An obedient faith. We talked about Luther adding faith only. He put that in there. That's not in the original manuscripts, the original copies, right? We don't have the original autographs, but we have copy after copy after copy after copy. It's not in there. It's not in there anywhere. We also learn the fact that one cannot be justified by the patriarchal law. One could not be justified by the Mosaic law. We have to be justified by that power of God and the salvation, which is the gospel. And we know that... Uh, those before the establishment of the church, when we look in Hebrews 9.15, they were justified in promise. They had to be faithful to the patriarchal law. They had to be faithful to the Mosaic law. But they were justified in promise. When we go over to Acts 17, verse 30, but now in the times of this ignorance, God winked at, overlooked. He's not winking at like, Hey, I know you're doing something wrong. I'm not going to pay any attention to it. No, that word ought to be overlooked. But what was he overlooking? He wasn't overlooking sin. He overlooked to the cross. And when that took place, those people that lived righteously were justified because they were faithful in the system wherein they lived. So we understand that. We're also going to understand the fact that all men are without excuse when it comes to matters of sin. Ignorance is no defense in law, is it? I'm going up Dayton Boulevard. I'm going 45 or 50 miles an hour. 
A police officer pulls me over. He says, you're speeding. I didn't know. I didn't see a sign. Too bad. It's out there. You weren't looking for it, right? I wasn't paying attention. I was coming up... uh, What's the name of the road we come up uh, off of uh, Hicks and Pike? Now the other one on down. Comes up and connects on the Memorial. Altamont? Okay. I came across a sign that said, The speed limit in all of the city is 25 miles per hour unless otherwise stated. And then I, I knew I was going more than 25 miles an hour. I got a little nervous. Then I saw a sign for 30 or 40 or whatever it is. Okay. I have to look for that. It's my responsibility. It is our responsibility as as God's creation to look for His message, and we learn that in Romans. Ignorance is not a defense against the law. So we learn that. The fact also that we learn is that without Christ, one will remain in a lost state. We have to have Christ. can't have the Jewish law can't have a denomination. We have to have Christ's church, His law, and without that, we're going to be in a lost state. We learn that in Romans. We also learn about how one must conduct himself or herself as members of the body of Christ. There are certain obligations that we have one toward another, right? There are certain obligations that we have uh, as Christians toward the world. There are obligations. There are obligations that we have that uh, God expects for us to uh, perform toward Him. And we're going to learn about that. Now, we can break this book of Romans down into a simple outline. First eight chapters talks about the gospel and that Christ is the remedy of sin. Chapters 9 through 11 talks about and vindicates God's actions for choosing the Jewish people through whom He would send Christ. Why did He pick the Jews? Why not pick some other nation? Everyone sprang from Adam and Eve, right? So why not pick some other nation? Well, if you remember, God told the Jewish people, the Israelite nation, I did not choose you because of your great numbers. Why did He say He chose them? Because you were small. I guess that's God's business, right? We'll leave that up to Him. If He wanted to choose the Jewish people through whom He would send the Messiah, that's His business. And so we're going to learn that in chapters 9 through 11. Why did He choose baptism as the final step into salvation? I can't tell you. I don't know why He chose water baptism. But I do know what it does for us, right? We do know what it does for us. God always tells us a reason for what He does. Now, He may not tell us the secret things, why did he choose water baptism? I don't know, but he did tell us what it does for us. Why did he choose the Jewish people? You know, I don't really know. But we know that he did choose them. Chapters 12 through 6 will then cover very practical matters. We can learn in an academic sense a whole lot, of, a whole lot about the Bible. But until we're able to translate that into practical matters or into a practical use, it really is not going to benefit us, Right? If I know 2 plus 2 equals 4, which it does, yet I go to the store and I give someone a $5 bill for something that costs $4 and they don't give me any change back and because I don't realize that an item I bought worth $2 and another item I bought worth $2 equals $4, I'm not putting to use that 
knowledge in a practical sense, I've just lost money, okay? So it doesn't do me any good if I'm not applying it. That's why we have practical matters. That's what we do when we study any aspect of the Bible, right? Let's make application. Let's learn from it. Here's something else we're going to understand. No apostle established the church in Rome. Now think about that. You don't have to have someone that is the most knowledgeable person in in, uh, biblical matters to help establish a congregation of people. You do not have to have a group of men to help establish a congregation of the Lord's people. I spent some time at Wheeler Hill in Pikeville where Clay's brother is one of the elders. And guess how that church was established? I believe it was about six women that established that congregation. They did the preaching. They did the Lord's Supper. They did the praying because it was just women. Now look out if you're a traveler and you come through and you're a Christian man. You're going to have a lot of work on your hands. You're going to preach. You're going to pray. You're going to lead singing. You're going to do all that stuff, right? Women established that. We're going to learn that it doesn't take a scholar to establish the Lord's... We don't have to be scholars. We don't have to be scholars. Do we need to be continually learning? Absolutely. But do we have to be scholars? No. In fact, I'll just tell you, very few scholars in the world when it comes to the Bible. Okay? Now, we're not explicitly told how the church in Rome was established. But we do know when we get over to Romans chapter 15 verse 24 that Paul wanted to go to them and in a few other places. We have one bell or two. Just one. Oh, that's not fair. (laughs) He wanted to go to impart spiritual gifts. How was spiritual gifts given? Only by an apostle, right? So I do not believe an apostle had ever been to Rome. Now what is the common theory in uh, the Catholic denomination. Peter established the congregation in Rome. Not so. I don't think Peter was ever in Rome. Okay? And we didn't get very far, but we're going to pick up there next time. Thank you very much.